God, our Father, Lord, we do praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and the amazing things that he has done to manifest your love to us on the cross at Calvary. Oh, Lord, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Father, he died and yet was raised again by your mighty power, which is at work in all of us who believe by your blessed Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. We thank you for such amazing and glorious wonders. Oh Lord, today as we look into these um, very important and rather complex matters of the second coming and of biblical prophecy, we ask, Father, that you would help us to understand with clarity. May it be clear to us. And Lord, I pray that you would make it simple in ways that give us understanding and give us light. Help us to sort these things out according to the text of Scripture and not the teachings and traditions of men. Lord, help us to be very discerning about what your word says specifically about these things. And I pray, Father, that you would just continue to give us further enlightenment as we work our way through the book of 2 Thessalonians. We thank you for the privilege of gathering here with all your holy people, for the freedom that we have to uh, proclaim your word in this place without fear of harm or persecution, and uh, for the freedom that we have to worship you in our country in our state, in our city, God, we're very grateful for this privilege and we recognize that most Christians in the world don't have the kind of freedoms that we have. And we are very grateful. We ask that you would continue that freedom for many, many generations to come as long as you will tarry, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for the privilege of having these Bibles in our hands, the ability to read them, and your spirit given to us by which we might discern what you have said to us. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Well, today we, we have to knock off the class a little bit early because we're going to be getting this place ready down here. So I'm going to try to bring some of the things I've been teaching to a close um, because there's really going to be a shift in the text here in Second Thessalonians. But as I do that, I want to encourage you to go away this week, and I want to give you a bunch of homework, like every good teacher does, right? I want you to go read your Bible. And this is what I want you to read. I want you to read Matthew 24, 1 through 44, Mark 13. 1 through 33, Daniel <laughs> chapter 7 through 9, I'm sorry, 7 through 12, and then Revelation chapter 13 and 14. And if you're feeling particularly gutsy, <laughs> go ahead and read chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book, Revelation. Um, that will be in preparation for our study of the text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Which primarily what's in view there is the person of the Antichrist, his work, what he does, who he is, how Christ destroys him. All of these kinds of things are in view there. But then also some key matters concerning the timing of the rapture versus the second coming and the revelation of the Antichrist. All of that is being dealt with in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And uh, I, you know, the more I kind of mull this over, I keep thinking, well, I'm spending an awful lot of time talking about different things concerning biblical prophecy, all of which has been related to our text, but at times I struggle with, am I getting you in water that's too deep? And uh, I, see, I see people saying, no, no, no. Okay, well, not everyone has 
expressed those sentiments. Some have said that they were in really deep water. But as I think about that, I think about my responsibility and role as a pastor. And one of the things that, that Paul says in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, he says, preach the word, man. Be instant in season and out of season, right? Convince, reprove, and exhort. How? With great patience and careful instruction. And so as we're working our way through this text in 2 Thessalonians, I, I have a tendency to want to just kind of broad brush it. And then every time I get to the text and I start writing out my outline and praying through what I'm supposed to be teaching, I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to it. I, I just really feel like there's so much more background that you need. And so um, I really feel like that's the Lord leading me to do that. And therefore, I'm going to dig in a little deeper here. And we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to uh, uh, explain a lot of similarities between Paul's eschatology and Jesus' eschatology. And I think you're going to find that to be very beneficial. So um, if you're coming to the class and you're thinking, man, oh man, I can't understand this prophecy stuff. How long is this stuff going to go on? Let me tell you, just a, a month or two and we'll be through this whole book and we'll be on to something else. I'm, I'm thinking we'll be done with 2 Thessalonians in January. So... Um, <coughs> That being said, uh, I wanted to deal with a couple of things that came up last week. The first one is somebody brought up Matthew 25, and I wasn't really prepared to answer the question that was, was being presented, so I want to address that just briefly. If you will, Matthew 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. So what's in view there is the parable of the talents, the parable of the ten virgins, see here. I'm sorry, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the judgment seat of Christ, or what appears to be the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? And the questions that, the question that was brought up was in regard to the text in verses 31 through 46, dealing with Christ's judgment of the nations. Okay? Of course, if we call that the judgment seat of Christ, that's probably confusing to you because um, you may have learned that <laughs> the judgment seat of Christ is what happens for believers in heaven. And uh, this is, is uh, let's not use that term. Let's just look at this and call it the judgment of the nations, which is what it says in 2531. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And I was suggesting that I didn't think this was something that happened immediately upon the second coming, but that this is something that was ongoing through the period of the millennium. And as I have considered this text and what I want to say to you about it today, I definitely still feel that way. And the main reason for that is, if you, if you just take it for a plain reading, thinking that when Christ shows up, he's going to bring all the nations to gather before him and judge them, then the nature of this judgment and the outcome of this judgment doesn't fit. Why is that? Because, number one, they're judged according to their works, which is not necessarily a problem. We're all going to be judged according to our works. And our works are going to... Uh, basically prove the fact that we have faith in Christ. Okay? Which is the only thing that justifies men before God. Are you with me? Yeah. And so if you look at a true believer's life, what, are, what kind of works are you going to see? Well, they're doing things that no unbeliever does. Okay? And so whenever you read about the judgment of God and or Christ throughout the New Testament... Almost every time it talks about men being judged according to their deeds. Okay? Even though we know that justification by God happens solely on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Are you with me? Okay. So what happens here in this judgment of nations, uh, if Christ just comes at the second coming here and gathers all the nations before them and judges them all, question, what will be the outcome of that judgment? For all of them. 
Toast. I agree. Toast. Why? Because whether you're a pre-tribber or a post-tribber, if you're a pre-tribber, the whole church got raptured a thousand years before, right? If you're a post-tribber, you get raptured when Christ returns, first order of business, right? So then who is it that Christ is judging? Well, according to dispensational premillennialism, which is pre-trib position, who's going to be judged in this judgment of nations is the nations of the world as well as the tribulation saints or those people who get saved during the period of the great tribulation. Okay? So this is how a pre-trib reviews this. They see this judgment in Matthew 25 as a judgment of all the Gentile nations and including those people that, that lived and believed the gospel during the period of the Great Tribulation, which they would see as a seven-year period. Well, the tribulation itself as a seven-year period. And these are the tribulation saints. You're very familiar with that if you know about premillennial, dispensational premillennialism. Okay? So uh, the way I see that, though, is that since the whole company of the church gets raptured at the second coming, who is this that Christ is judging? Well, I think what's pictured is a conflation of Christ ruling on his throne for a thousand years, judging the nations of the earth. I think this is in fulfillment to Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 72, verses 8 and following, where the Messiah is seen ruling on his throne over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them as pottery. And the idea is that Christ is physically going to rule over the kingdoms of the earth during the millennial period. Another complicated matter is what, as I brought this up before for you to chew on, what is the nature of the gospel during the millennial kingdom? Because it's not the same kind of gospel that we have today. Why? Because we are not going to be receiving Christ by faith. He's the king on the throne, ruling the nations with an iron scepter. True? So what is the nature of the gospel? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's still by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that this uh, more complete revelation of God, you understand how God has been bringing greater levels of revelation throughout the course of history and as each stage unfolds before us we have a greater and greater insight into his plan of redemption and so on and so forth I'd like to suggest it's going to be even more so in the millennial kingdom and not only that Satan's going to be bound and there's going to be a time of great flourishing so on and so forth and it won't be until Satan is released after the thousand years are over when the nations are deceived again and they come to make war against Christ battle of Gog and Magog uh, as pictured in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And there we have the final rebellion, and Christ, of course, wipes them out. <coughs> so what am I saying about Matthew 25? Well, I think that there is a conflation here. And what that conflation is, it has in picture the fact that Christ, when he comes, is going to sit on his throne and judge the nations. And it talks about the nature of his judgment. What is his judgment going to be like? Well, it's going to be a, a judgment according to how they live, how they serve. I think this is the most definitive text on what the nature of the gospel will be like in the millennial kingdom. But the reason why I'm saying that this can't all just happen here at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom is because of the last verse, which says, this is the outcome of the judgment. Sheep and goats, right? Sheep on the right, goats on the left. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Now, again, we have the same problem that we had in our text of 2 Thessalonians. If Jesus just comes along and uh, brings this judgment immediately at the second coming and all the nations are judged, right? Um, then when he does that, all the unbelieving peoples of the world, what happens? They go away into eternal punishment. They're toast. They're snuffed. It's all said and done. And, if you will, there's no one left to populate the millennial kingdom. Okay, that's how I see it. All right? Now, the way a pre-tribber views that is, with this judgment that's going to happen, um, the, the nations are judged, and they do all get judged and destroyed at that point by Christ. 
And the believers who lived through the tribulation, the tribulation saints, at that time um, get judged here as the sheep. And they live on, and they are the ones who populate the millennial kingdom, the nations of the millennial kingdom. And so the question is, who are the nations who rebel against Christ at the end when the thousand years are over? It's the children of these living believers who enter into the millennial kingdom in non-glorified bodies. Okay? That's the, that's the typical dispensational premillennial view. Okay? So, I wanted to address that. I didn't want to just, you know, kind of say, well, I don't know what's going on in Matthew 25. To me, verse... 46 looks very much like the great white throne judgment. And so when I say there's a conflation, what I'm saying is what's pictured in Matthew 25 is Christ ruling over the nations with an iron scepter for a thousand years. And at the end of that, the ultimate judgment that takes place at the great white throne. So there's two things in view, his rule during the millennial kingdom and his judgment at the great white throne. That's how I view Matthew 25. So you could say... When Jesus comes again, he's going to judge all mankind. Is he going to do it immediately right here? No, not necessarily. He's going to enter into a period of judgment for a thousand years. But at the end will come the ultimate judgment. Just like when we read 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, where it said Christ is going to come in blazing fire with his mighty angels. He's going to destroy those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was telling you, if he does all of that right here, there's nobody left to populate the millennial kingdom. Okay? So that's a problem. So how do I understand that? I understand that text as a conflation. What, what's in view there is Christ's retribution on the nations at the great white throne judgment. So when he comes, yes, he's going to destroy many people. Those slain by the Lord will be from one end of the earth to the other. Are they all going to be killed? No. There are going to be surviving nations that populate the millennial kingdom. Mortals on the earth over whom the church is ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years in glorified bodies. Okay? So you can see there, there, there are some pretty significant differences between dispensational premillennialism and uh, historic premillennialism. Okay? okay? Clear as mud? So with that, I wanted to bring up this. This chart was back there. I don't know if you saw that today. But I've emailed this thing to you like four times. Yeah. Everybody seen that before? Yeah. Okay, I wanted to bring this up because when I asked the question the other day, how many, how many of you are premillennialists? I had six people out of 85 or 90. Yeah. When really, I, I think everybody here is a premillennialist. If there isn't one, I don't, uh, if there's one who's not, I don't know of that. But this chart, I want to go over this with you so that you understand what this means. Okay? You see the gray thing in the middle that says two different discussions about two different topics? You see that? It's pointing up toward one discussion and down toward another discussion. Okay, the discussion going down, let's focus on that for a minute here. What is that discussion? Premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Okay, those are all positions of futurism, right? But they all believe a different thing about when Christ will return. So a premillennialist believes that Christ will return before the millennium, right here. Right? Before the thousand years, Christ returns then. And he establishes his throne and rules on a physical throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's premillennialism. Okay? Then there is amillennialism, which means no millennium. An amillennialist doesn't believe there is a millennium. We're in it now. Okay, that's the position of amillennialism. Dominant position of the church from the 4th century to the um, 19th century. 
Premillennialism didn't make its resurgence until the 19th century. Okay? And thank God for dispensational premillennialism, which is what really brought the resurgence of premillennialism back into the thinking of the, of the evangelical church. Okay? And under, well, Darby's the one that's really attributed with it, although he's not really the... The, uh, the first one, Darby and Schofield, these kind of guys really made it popular so that by the 20th century, the first part of the 20th century, it was the dominant position of the uh, conservative branch of the evangelical church. Okay? So, evangelical Protestantism. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, get me into some really deep water there. So... That discussion down there, oh, I'm sorry, post-millennialism. Post-millennium, Christ returns after the millennium. Okay? Here's how that works. A post-millennialist says, well, we're going along through time since the cross, and there's going to come a point in time when the whole world will believe the gospel. And because of that, we will have a thousand years of peace on the earth because people are, in essence, going to seek to live as Christian believers, and we're going to have 1,000 years of, of glory. And then Christ will return and consummate the ages at the end of that period. Okay? That is post-millennialism. Okay? There's some terms I want to warn you about. Theonomism. Is that right? Yes. Theon, it's a theonomy, right, or theonomism, which is very closely tied to postmillennialism, which is the idea that we're supposed to Christianize the world, and we're supposed to Christianize the government, and we're supposed to take the, the uh, biblical law of God and bring it to bear upon civil governments all across the world. It's the stuff, this water gets real deep, okay? I want to tell you, bad stuff. Don't go there. Don't go there, Okay? And uh, it, but it's very closely tied to the modern post-millennial. Um, now, now, not all post-millennials are theonomists, but many of them are, okay? And I'm warning you, stay away from that. It's a bad thing, okay? I have a pastor, a friend of mine, who is having fits in his church because that stuff has inf infiltrated his church. Which, by the way, there's a thing called the vision forum. If you know what the vision forum is then I don't need to tell you about it. If you don't, then you don't really need to worry about it. <laughs> but here's the deal. The, the Vision Forum, okay, sells a lot of these materials that are post-millennial and theonomistic, okay? So watch out. I'm warning you, okay? You with me? And I know that most of you people are very discerning, and you know what to do with that information. Where do preterists fall into that lower topic? Are they Preterists aren't in that lower topic. Okay. So these are all positions of futurism, which is opposed to preterism. So preterism isn't pictured on this diagram at all. Understand? Okay, these are all futuristic views. We, even if you're an amillennialist, you believe Christ is coming in the future. If you're a postmillennialist, you believe Christ is coming in the future. If you're a premillennialist like me, then you believe Christ is coming in the future. Okay? If you're a preterist, you believe Christ already came. A full preterist. Okay? And now all the partial preterists hear me say that, and they're screaming because I hit their <laughs> sore thumb with a hammer. And, uh, <clears throat> okay. So, preterism. You remember that discussion. This back on the notes, right? Yeah. Page 76 or something like Basically, that. Basically, the postmillennialist doesn't believe that there's an actual physical rule of Christ on earth. You got it. Instead, the church is ruling and reigning while Christ is in heaven. And, and uh, so that's the idea. Uh, so up, up the arrow's pointing up now. Okay? That's a different discussion. That's not a discussion about amillennialism, postmillennialism, or premillennialism. Okay? This is a discussion about premillennialism. So if you're a premillennialist, in other words, you believe that Jesus, let's fix this. <laughs> By the way, this is the right way. 
Okay, Christ is going to come, and he's going to, at the second coming, establish his millennial rule. He's going to rule for a thousand years. <clears throat> and um, he's going to come before that, and he is by force going to establish his throne on the earth, and he is going to subdue all the evil on the face of the earth at that time. Amen. It's all going to be brought underneath his kingship, and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? And only for a brief period of rebellion at the end of that thousand years will there be any more sin in the world. Okay, I'm not saying there won't be sin in the millennium. I'm just saying that this is going to be kind of the last hurrah for sin and death, which is the final rebellion. And it's then when Christ wipes out everything, the great white throne, death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire forever. And the current heavens and earth are destroyed forever. And behold, I saw new heavens and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. Right? And, uh, okay, that's the new heavens and the new earth after that. The eternal state, the eternal kingdom in which there is no more sin or mourning or dying or crying or pain. Right? Outside the city are the dogs, the sexually immoral, and the idolaters. Their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever and ever. Right? Okay? All right. So, so what we're talking about here, look at that picture real close. You see that there's a thousand-year millennium, that Christ comes before the millennium. But this pre-tribulationism or mid-tribulationism or pre-wrath or post-tribulationism, those four positions which are pictured there are all discussions within premillennialism. And those terms refer to the timing of the rapture. So if you're a pre-tribber, you believe Christ comes before the 70th week of Daniel, okay, which is a seven-year period right at the end of history before the second coming, okay? If you're a mid-tribber, you believe that Christ comes at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Okay? That's a mid-tribber. I'm sorry, not Christ comes. Christ raptures the church. Am I, what am I saying here? A pre-tribber sees the rapture of the church before the 70th week. A mid-tribber sees it at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Okay? A pre-rather sees it right in between the three-and-a-half-year mark and the second coming. <laughs> and a post-tribber sees it right there at the uh, second coming. Okay? So that's all a discussion about the timing of the rapture, but all those people together are premillennialists. Okay, and here's something I've tried to say several times, again and again. Not everybody in here is a post-tribber like me. Okay? Some people are pre-tribbers, but we're all pre-millennialists. We have so much more in agreement than we do in disagreement. It's just that every time I start telling you why I'm a post-tribber, I get under your skin. <laughs> but, but beside the point, we're all pre-millennialists, and we believe Christ is coming before the millennium to establish his throne. He's going to rule and reign in righteousness from his throne. That, that is very clear in Scripture. The timing of the rapture is not as clear. And because of all the controversy of good men and good scholars, people are really confused about it because the Bible has a ton to say about it, and it all happens in different contexts with different writers to whom different, they were writing to different recipients. And some of it's apocalyptic, some of it's prophetic, some of it's didactic, right? And so you try to put all that together, and it's, it's difficult. We've been trying to work out our position for many, many years, some of us. Right? Yes, sir. So does that mean if there's no place for the uh, tribulation in amillennialism or postmillennialism? It doesn't mean that necessarily. Um, amillennialists and postmillennialists, some of them will talk about those things. Some of them have very similar views to what premillennialism is like, just with no millennium. But they are typically not focused on that at all. They have a whole different paradigm. <coughs> Okay, they're, they're typically focused on Christ's current uh, rule and intercession at God's right hand in heaven. And they are very focused on how that affects our Christian life 
and that we are now ruling and reigning as kings and priests in the world. That's, that's how all millennialists and post-millennialists see this. Okay, so, and they take that ball and run with it with a thing like theonomy, okay? And it really gets complex. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff they, they come up with. But, uh, uh, but, so did I answer your question? So, yeah, so the answer is yes. Some amillennialists do believe there's a great tribulation. And um, as a matter of fact, I believe they all do. The thing is, though, they don't emphasize those things like a premillennialist does. So do they just put it before Christ's return? Yes. And yeah. forget? So yes, an amillennialist sees no millennium. We're just going along, and Christ is going to return and consummate the ages. Done. So, so there'll be the tribulation, then Christ will come back. And yes. The will be in the millennial kingdom, then there'll be a tribulation, and then Christ returns? If you're a post-millennialist? Uh, a post-millennialist typically sees uh, they're kind of like a partial preterist. Okay? Now let's, the water's going to get deeper. <laughs> <laughs> they, they see the events of 70 AD much like a preterist does. And they would say that that, that stuff is apocalyptic, that, uh, that you know, this... Uh, uh, what, what was in view there was the ending of the age of Judaism that happened at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And uh, that, that is when Christ's rule officially, uh, Judaism officially came to a close and Christ's rule and reign as king and priest uh, once the daily sacrifice was abolished, okay, by God through the Roman army, okay, that uh, Christ is now our, our great high priest ruling in heaven from that point forward. So it's a virtual millennium because we're a little past a thousand years. Yeah, well, you know, on post-millennialism, post they actually think that that's not really when the millennium begins, which is what we were talking about there. Post-millennialism, they believe that there's going to be a point when, when all the nations believe the gospel. We're not there yet. This is why there's theonomy, because we're not doing our job. We've, we've got to evangelize the world. Kingdom nowers are... Yes, dominion theology. Yes, kingdom now. It's very closely related to theonomy. There's a lot of different names and you know, guys. And it's but if the whole world has to believe, Christ will never get to come back. Because the whole world will never believe. Amen, sister. makes no sense. I'm with you. Somebody's been reading their Bible. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm with you. I'm with you. But, uh, okay, so I, I, I wanted to address all of that. Go ahead, Cherry. The only thing I want to say, because I grew up in the amillennial um, church, uh -huh. and most of them are reformers, so they believe only the ones that are supposed to be Christian saved are the ones that are saved. Then that sets in the millennium. Then that? Then that will set in the millennium. But those who are supposed to be saved will then be saved that God knew them ahead of time because they're reformers. Uh-huh. And so they believe that, that that will set in the... Yeah, well, so, you know, amillennialism... Uh, what was I going to say? Amillennialism... Oh, okay, yeah. The, uh, the fully reformed faith is amillennial by nature. Mm -hmm. The eschatology of the reformed church is amillennial. Mm -hmm. and, and when I say reformed church, I'm talking about those churches that came directly out of the ministry of John Calvin, okay, which, which the, the large proponent of that over the last 500 years has been the Dutch Reformed Church, which is where the Synod of Dort, the, all the arguments over Calvinism and Arminianism, the Synod of Dort was held there, and, and uh, if you will, they were the proponents of the Reformed Church. Okay, now I'm not talking about Reformed theology like you all think about Reformed theology. I'm talking about the actual Reformed church, who, if you will, they are kind of the many Reformed people think that you're not really Reformed unless you hold all of those Reformed positions that, for example, like pedo-baptism, baptizing infants, um, amillennial eschatology is another one, okay? Um, a lot of their ecclesiology... Um, is very focused on uh, sacerdotalism. It's very sacramental. It's very uh, liturgical in many cases. Okay, so, but that is the original Reformed Church. Okay, so that is to be distinguished from reform. Just, you know, when we say, when somebody says, is your church Reformed, right? What do they mean? Well, they mean that you think God is sovereign in his providence and in salvation. 
That's what they mean when they say that, right? They're not asking if you're baptizing infants. Are you with me? Okay, so you have to kind of make a distinction there. These terms get really... Totally reformed is one of the things that they... Okay, yeah. So totally reformed would mean that you, if you will, your theology is almost identical to John Calvin's. Okay? Which, which I would say I'm with him 95% of the way. It's that little 5% that, uh, or maybe it's 90%, whatever you want to call it. I'm not going there. I'm not amillennial and I don't baptize babies. Okay? <laughs> that probably got me in real big trouble there. <laughs> okay. I'm going to move on now. Are we ready? Okay, that was the first question that came up last week. The second question was, I told you that I would address your questions. Okay? And I don't want to just brush over that stuff. And uh, it's real hard to have question and answer every day when we have such a big class. So I try to bring those questions forward as a serious matter and try to tell you how it fits into the things I'm teaching you and how it fits into the text of Scripture. Uh, so somebody brought up the issue of what about the Battle of Armageddon? Okay, so how many of you wondered about the Battle of Armageddon as I've been talking through all these things? One, two, three, four, five, about 10, 15. Okay, all right, so grab your Bible and turn to Revelation 16. So, first question is, when I mentioned the Battle of Armageddon, how many of you, the little light in your head went ding, Revelation 16? Nope. I got one. Two. Oh, three. I got three. I got three Revelation 16s on the Battle of Armageddon. Guess what? That's the only place that it's mentioned by name. Okay, the little difficulty comes into where does it fit into the timeline, which is what the question was. The question was, where in all this stuff that you're talking about does the Battle of Armageddon happen? And I said, at the second coming of Christ. That's where it happens, at the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes again, there's going to be a big battle. Okay. The problem comes in, in understanding the, the latter, well, the chapters of Revelation as they unfold. They're not necessarily chronological. And they're certainly, definitely not chronological throughout the whole book of Revelation. Because throughout the whole book are these literary interludes. These panoramas that kind of open up and give us understanding of things that aren't necessarily meant to fall into the chronology of events that are flowing through the book. Okay, so for example, the second coming of Christ is pictured in Revelation chapter 6 at the sixth seal. I'm sorry, at the seventh seal. Or I forget which one it is, but when, there, when that seal is opened up, right, the sun doesn't shine, the moon doesn't shine, the stars fall from the sky, and the nations of the earth mourn, and the men try to hide in the caves and the rocks and say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. But question, does the second coming of Christ happen as early in Revelation as chapter 6? Not in the chronology of how the events unfold, but in the, in the literary interlude that's seen in chapter 6? Yes, absolutely. Okay? So that's what I'm saying. It's not real simply laid out in Revelation. It's a very difficult thing that will cause you to wrestle all the days of your life. Trust me. Um, but, but the point of the matter is, it happens there. Christ is seen there in chapter 6. He's also seen coming in chapter 14 to harvest the earth with his angels, right? Then again, he's seen the real, what we call the second coming of Christ in, in the book of Revelation is pictured in chapter 19, right? Where he destroys the kings of the earth and the, the uh, uh, antichrist and the false prophet and he binds Satan for a thousand years. Right? That's where we typically will talk about the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation, the latter part of the chapter 19. 
So the question was, when does this battle of Armageddon happen? Well, let's look at the text in 16. I'll start in verse 13. What's in view in chapter 16 is the seven bowls of God's wrath that are being poured out. Okay? And um, I'll go back to verse uh, 12. This is the sixth bowl of God's wrath. Okay? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, now that place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon is simply the Valley of Megiddo, right? It's in the northern section of the land of Palestine there. There's even a city there, modern-day city, called Megiddo. Okay? It's a, and most of it is just the ruin of the ancient Megiddo, but there it is. Uh, but nevertheless, here it is pictured, this battle of Armageddon is pictured in verse 16. It's just mentioned that these spirits go out to gather. Who do they gather? The... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Where's that verse? 14. 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Okay? So it's mentioned that they go out to gather these kings for this war, but the war doesn't happen here. So where does the war happen? Well, the war happens in 19 verses 17 through 21. Why? Because there are two literary interludes between chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, and chapter 19. Okay, those two literary interludes are Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18. Two different um, panoramas of things that are taking place in the world at this time that are, are characterizing the nature of what's happening when Christ returns and the fall of the economic and religious systems of the world. Okay, because if you read on, back on 16, watch. Back in, in 16, you read on. He says, Then the seventh bull poured out his bowl on the air, and a loud voice came up out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes and lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Okay, seventh bowl, listen, great earthquake, the cities of the nations fall. Okay? And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Okay, so then what's pictured is Revelation chapter 17, the harlot that rides the beast. She is, if you will, the false religious systems of the world. And there the angel is showing how uh, her fall comes to a tragic end. Then in chapter 18 is seen Babylon, what is called Mystery Babylon, okay, which, if you will, is representative of the economic systems of the world. And how she's made the whole world drunk with, with her materialism and her great uh, trade and economics. And, and how the, uh, uh, in chapter 18 is pictured the fall of Babin, Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, cried the angel, right? These two chapters, 17 and 18, are these literary interludes telling you about how the economic and religious systems of the world are coming crashing down at the second coming of Christ. Okay. So, what happened there in 16 
chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, when those spirits went out to gather these armies for war, gets picked up again in Revelation chapter 19. And the chronology begins again. Are you with me? Except now we actually physically see the visible personal bodily return of Jesus on, on a white horse coming down out of heaven to make war against the kings of the earth who have gathered to make war against him, right? Who are being led by these demonic kings. The false prophet and the antichrist. And there in Revelation chapter 19, Christ destroys them all. Okay? That is typically what is viewed as the battle of Armageddon. It's when, when these nations of the earth gather there to make war against Christ at the signs of these demons who went out and gathered them for war. Okay? And here is pictured the fall of all earthly authority and government. Okay? And when Christ destroys all of that, then he begins to establish his own rule for the millennial kingdom. Okay? And you have to think about how these things are going to unfold in the course of time and, and space. It's not going to happen in one day. It's going to be inaugurated on one day. When? When the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky. Right? And he's so bright, he dims the sun. Right? You with me? That's when this whole chain of events is going to begin to unfold. Okay, so when does the Battle of Armageddon happen? Answer, it's spoken of in Revelation 16, but it doesn't actually come to pass until Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21. And uh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention about that. Okay, Gog and Magog. There's a lot of discussion with prophecy teachers about Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Okay? If you study prophecy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have never read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you don't really understand prophecy, listen to what I'm about to say. I think that stuff happens at the end of the millennium. Why? Because it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. That's why. What does it say there? Here's what it says. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now look in your center column of your reference Bible. Do you see all the Ezekiel 38s and 39s there? Why? Because what's happening in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Gog and Magog are gathering to surround the city of Jerusalem and make war against God's people. Okay? That's what is happening here in Revelation 7 through 10. Okay? And the devil who deceived them... Uh, I'm sorry, fire came down from heaven and devoured them, verse 9, 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I simply wanted to mention that I don't believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 happens at the Battle of Armageddon. I think that happens at the end of the millennium, and I just told you why. Because it's pictured at the end of the millennium, in Revelation chapter 20. Okay? So, um, is the water real deep now? <laughs> okay. You see how all these things are tied together? I mean, you can't just, I mean, it's just so, it's so um, massively all-encompassing in the scriptures. You know, it's, I mean, the, these things have been spoken of by biblical writers in the course of the writing of scripture over a period of 2,000 years. And, and um, in so many different ways, in so many different contexts, and in, in different genres of literature. Some, you know, John in Revelation, it's entirely apocalyptic. Almost entirely apocalyptic, the whole book. Paul, on the other hand, First and Second Thessalonians is almost entirely didactic. He's giving us instruction. He's telling us exactly what's going to happen. 
Jesus, Olivet Discourse, is very much the same way. He's answering the question, what will be the, the, uh, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then he goes on and he just says, here's how it's going to happen. It's going to unfold just like this, this, that, and the other. Okay? And uh, so, you know, there's just so many different ways these things are spoken of and so many different events that come to play. That's what makes it kind of hard to, to wade through all that water. But what I want to suggest, that I, something I've mentioned to you before, I think the thing to do is to read the Olivet Discourse so many times that you know exactly how Jesus answered the question to his disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then you use that as infrastructure to uphold all your understanding of the prophets and the apocalyptic literature. Then when you read something like what Paul's saying or Peter or John or Ezekiel or Daniel, you have a place to fit all that stuff. Why? Because Jesus laid it out, man. That's why. He laid it out very simply and very clearly, and he told you exactly how it was. Right? And uh, so, again, you know, I, I think what I'm saying is the backbone of all prophetic literature is the Olivet Discourse. It's not the book of Daniel. Daniel gives us a lot of insight. Okay? Daniel gives us a lot of insight, but he doesn't give us near the kind of insight about how all these events are going to unfold like Jesus does. Okay? All right. So, good night. I've got to end. I'm, I'm over time here. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here in this place. I pray that as we consider all these monumental things that you have mentioned in your scripture, that we would take time to think deeply about these things and to read the scriptures that are being presented to us and to consider how they fall into the grand scheme of things. Surely, Lord, you don't want us to just brush over this material, but you have given it to us in such detail in so many ways that you want us to know and understand this truth. Not only that, but Father, how it gives us great wisdom and knowledge about your plan and your purposes and gives us the ability to speak to unbelievers about uh, these events that are coming upon the whole world and to seek to persuade them knowing the great terror that you are going to bring upon the world. God, help us to be with our noses in the Bible, learning and growing in this wisdom. We thank you for the privilege of having so many resources to study your word in our day and age. And Father, I just pray that for those of us who may be overwhelmed by all of this material, that you just uh, calm our hearts, send us to the scripture to just continue to read and to seek you, Lord, personally for understanding. We thank you for your grace to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.